such a blessing to celebrate Sabbath. After a work week with a lot of things going on, we have the privilege to meet here as a church and listen to the Word of God, meditate upon what He has given to us. Now, I think most of us <clears throat> know Elon Musk, the founder of Tesla, but he is not just, um, <clears throat> this is not his only enterprise that he has. He leads also space exploration technologies. Uh, and this is abbreviated called SpaceX. And I just read that on Thursday they launched 60 satellites into orbit. <clears throat> so they are manufacturing advanced rocket spacecraft for mission beyond the Earth orbit. Now, founded in 2002, SpaceX's mission is to enable humans to become a spacefaring civilization and the multi-planet species, multi-planet species by building a self-sustaining city on Mars. So this is what you can find on their website. This is their mission statement, more or less. There's another gentleman with the name Fernando Calvo. He has written an article about another gentleman. His name is Dr. Silva. And this article was entitled, The Prison Planet. So he addresses, this Mr. Calvo addresses what Dr. Calvo is saying about humanity. After analyzing the human race, Dr. Alice Silver concludes that our species does not originate from Earth, but has been settled here. He is convinced that our species was brought to this planet thousands of years ago by an alien race. And he speculates that these aliens came from Alpha Centauri, the double star system. And they use planet Earth as a prison planet and keep humanity here as long as we don't shed a primitive, aggressive behavior. Okay? Um, the, Mr. Calvo says then, perhaps that would also explain why even today most people on Earth feel they are still strangers here and why they have been attracted to distant world in the universe since earliest time. So we have two people here, Elon Musk and Alice Silver. They dream about a place beyond Earth as a location for humans to live. Now, many Christians would not buy into their specific approaches. I, at least I would not. But they would suggest that the final place to inhabit forever, we would suggest that too, that the final place to inhabit forever can hardly be planet Earth as it is now, in the present, current condition. Christians expect to live in what is called heaven or on a new Earth which is renewed and purged from all traces and tracks of sin. They consider themselves pilgrim and looking for a future reality. Now already Abraham, Father Abraham, was waiting for a city built by God. And he lived as an alien among the people of that time. Jesus himself indicated that he would go away and said, where I am going, you cannot come. Pastor Chad already, Chad Stewart already mentioned that, I am play, that I'm supposed to speak about 
the ascension, and that topic was given to me. Now, Adventists, unlike other denominations, don't have a liturgical year. Other denominations have, have quite detailed liturgical year. We don't have. We still remember Christmas, and we still remember Easter. Um, other Christians also celebrate Ascension Day. And by the way, next Thursday is Ascension Day, and some Christians celebrate that. In some countries, Ascension Day is even a public holiday. Now, not all people will celebrate that. They use that as a day to do all kinds of, of funny things. But nevertheless, uh, this is Ascension Day. I think it's appropriate that today we meditate and contemplate a bit the Lord's Ascension and the good news of the Lord's Ascension. When we as Adventists hear the term ascension, I suppose, our minds go to Acts 1, the book of Acts chapter 1, and we remember verses 9 through 11, typically. And this is probably the best-known ascension passage. I will read it. So if you want to follow, that is in Acts 1, verses 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, disciples were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. Now, this is by far not the only ascension passage in Scripture. There are many more. So the Gospel of Mark has some, the Gospel of Luke, Paul speaks about that, Peter speaks about ascension, and even the Apostle John. And to be a, one of the 12 apostles meant to be an eyewitness from the beginning of the baptism of John until Christ was taken up to heaven. This was the definition of the 12 apostles. I suppose we as Adventists, especially like Acts 1, because the ascension is linked to the second coming. And we believe in the second coming, and we like to talk about the second coming. Now, Adventist fundamental beliefs mention briefly the ascension, and they say ascended to heaven, Jesus ascended to heaven to minister in the heavenly sanctuary on our behalf. And Christ's ministry in heaven and the second coming are for us, aren't they? They are for us. Correct. But neither Jesus' intercession as high priest nor his second coming are the only reasons for his ascension. Now, we may be quick to ask the question, especially this generation, what does Christ's ascension mean to me, to us and to me? And this is a relevant question. But it should not be our first question. Otherwise, if it is the first question, it reveals a selfish approach to life. According to the motto, if it does not do me any good, it is meaningless. But life is not only about me, it is about God, it is about humankind, and it's about God's creation. So we must focus on God first, and therefore, 
the first and primary question should be, what does the ascension mean to Jesus and to the Godhead? First question, what does the ascension mean to God and to Jesus? Second question, what does Christ's ascension mean to the universe and to the plan of salvation? Third question, here it comes. What does it mean to us? But only now, third question. So we have to back up and wait a moment until we answer the third question. What does it mean to us? In his first letter to his younger colleague, Paul addresses Timothy, encourages him, challenges him. He talks to him about the problems of false prophets and teachers in the churches and suggests to establish a certain church order in the congregations that he was responsible for. In the middle of that discussion, however, about church order and other things, in that middle of the discussion, suddenly Paul refers to Jesus. And this is the text that we have heard in Scripture reading, and I want to read it again. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up to glory. Paul says, before God has established the church as his household and as a pillar and support of the truth of the gospel. The gospel is that the second person of the Godhead became a human person, was resurrected after his death, seen by the angels, proclaimed and believed by people, and ascended to God in glory. This is the mystery he is talking about, the mystery. But it is a revealed mystery, because mystery in the New Testament is always something which is revealed. The center of 1 Timothy, I think, is reached with this particular verse, namely the confession of the great truth of the cosmic Christ, who is the Lord and Savior of his church. Now, in this hymn, chapter 3, verse 16, the incarnation and the ascension of Jesus are connected. Jesus becoming flesh and the ascension. You see that? And this is different from the text we, led, we, we looked at first, because there, in Acts 1, you have, you have the ascension connected to the second coming. If we jump to the book of Revelation briefly, we notice that in this chapter 12, the middle of the, of the book, verse 5, there is a symbolic woman, which is the church, and she gives birth to a male child, which is the Messiah. And the text says, who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So what do we get here? Again, Christ's incarnation, and right away, Christ's ascension. They are directly linked. His death on the cross is mentioned later, in the same chapter, verse 11, when it speaks about the blood of the Lamb. And the book says also, Jesus died, lives forever, and has the keys, keys to death and Hades. And his second coming is found throughout the book of Revelation. But Revelation 12, verse 5, focuses on 
incarnation and ascension. No question, Jesus' incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension come as a package. Jesus' death on the cross was the greatest disappointment of humankind. Certainly much greater than the disappointment of 1844. But it proved to be the greatest demonstration of his love. It is also the greatest evidence of God's selfless character, his compassion and grace. Yet the death of Jesus would have been inconsequential without resurrection. And his resurrection would have kept Jesus on earth limited in some way if there would not have been the ascension. So I repeat it. Acts 1 connects Christ's ascension with the second coming. The texts in Timothy and in Revelation link the ascension to Christ's incarnation. And this is important, an important observation, and takes us to this first question that we want to ask. What does Jesus' ascension mean to him and to God, the Father and the Holy Spirit? The incarnation of the second person of the Godhead is maybe the miracle of miracles. We cannot fully grasp that as human beings. If I would become an ant, if I would be incarnated as an ant, and try to show the ants that there is a greater reality than the anthill. It would still not reflect the difference between God and his glory and between God incarnate, even if I became an ant, because I still would be a human being. I mean, I would still be a creature, sorry. Yeah? I would still be a creature but not so with God. God is the creator. Jesus did not only enter into human creatureliness, but also in the realm of human corruption and perdition. In the incarnation, God becomes man and the creator becomes creature. In addition, he becomes a servant, humiliated, mistreated, and finally killed. So Jesus incarnate is not only completely like us because he was fully human, but he is also completely unlike us. He is completely human and completely God, having two natures simultaneously. The secret of his humanity has no parallel among us. Furthermore, the gods have decision for the son to become a human being predates the act of creation. This work of grace was established before the earth was brought into existence. The secret, the very depth of the secret of God's grace is that at the beginning of all of his works and ways, he elected this so strangely merciful exchange, namely the son becoming human so that humans would be able to become sons and daughters of God. Jesus' incarnation. In contrast now, in contrast, Jesus' ascension is something like a homecoming. A homecoming. A joyful family reunion. 
We do not know how the persons of the Godheads are directly connected with each other because we cannot understand divinity. But we know that Jesus as a human being needed to seek the contact to his heavenly Father. So on a daily basis, Jesus spoke to the Father in prayer, frequently in nature and sometimes even extendedly. If he had to make decisions, he followed the divine will. As the Father taught him, he says, so he spoke. He was convinced also that the Father loved him. But as a human being, he still had no direct contact to the Father, as we don't have also direct contact in the sense that we see God physically, directly in front of us. Finally, on the cross, Jesus felt completely cut off from his heavenly Father. This God-forsakenness broke his heart. Certainly, Jesus has always and constantly in his mind humanity because he loves humans and cares for them. But Jesus, when he was on earth, had certainly also constantly in mind his heavenly Father. He stated that nobody has seen the Father except he who is from God, he himself. He must have longed to be with the Father. After all, this is what we humans do. If we are separated from our spouse and we love her or him, we want to be reunited. So when I'm traveling, I'm happy already as I start my travel to be home again and see my wife. If we are separated from our families, normally we are looking forward to meet them again. Some people do not, do not know their physical father. And some of them take great pains, extraordinarily pains to find their real father and get to know him. The ascension must have meant tremendously much for Jesus himself. What about the other persons of the Godhead? The idea, the idea that God is pure knowledge and wisdom and has no emotions, as even some Christians teach, is not a biblical concept. The Holy Spirit can be grieved, and the Father suffers while Jesus is being crucified. But God also rejoices. There is even joy in heaven for what just one sinner who repents. And the father in the parable of the prodigal son runs toward this rebellious son to greet him and embrace him and kiss him. When Jacob finally believes, he had been told that Joseph was dead, when he finally believes that Joseph is alive and was not torn apart and eaten by wild beasts, the Bible says his spirit revived. And he said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before I die. Family reunion. This was one of the great family reunions in, that took place in human history. It happened in Egypt. How much more? How much more do God the Father and the Holy Spirit rejoice as the divine human Son returns home to heaven? This is what ascension is about. Jesus' ascension is most celebrated, the most celebrated, and the most important homecoming of all times and of all places. The Godhead is reunited in heaven. 
There is joy and there is praise in heaven. The interim, the time when Jesus ministered on earth, including his death and resurrection, has come to an end. And yet it has not come completely to an end. Not only because Jesus loves humans so much, but because Jesus' incarnation has changed him permanently. Permanently. He retains two natures, the nature of God and the human nature. He is the true son of man and the truly human but exalted being. And in his perfect being, humanity is being elevated. Furthermore, his homecoming has affected and brought about a change of his status in heaven. So his life, death, resurrection, and ascension has changed forever the universe. It has changed the world. It has changed the Godhead because now one member of the Godhead is human and divine. He's perfect, the perfect, sinless human being and still divine. On earth, Jesus was a human being without ceasing to be God. In heaven, he is God without ceasing to be the representative of humanity. This is ascension. It's the ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, the plan of salvation does not only affect humanity, it affects, as we know, the entire universe because the conflict is not limited to this world only. As humans, we have to make decisions in favor of or against God and so have heavenly beings to make decisions either for or against God. Mark states, the Lord Jesus was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Peter adds, he was gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And Paul broadens the picture even more by writing, he who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Jesus' ascension led to his exaltation, his heavenly glory and enthronement. Jesus functions not only as the great high priest, but also as the king of kings. He will bring the planet, uh, the plan of salvation to its conclusion, and he will take care of sin and all of e evil. In Revelation 5, you probably know Revelation 5, but typically you may not associate that with ascension, and yet it is the chapter which describes the ascension of Jesus. So in, in Revelation 5 describes what happened in connection with Jesus' ascension when he joined the Father on his throne. What happened there? The four living beings, which were directly around the throne, and the 24 elders, the wider circle around the throne of God, fell down before they ascended Christ the King. In their hands, they held harps and golden balls full of incense. The incense, the text tells us, consists of the prayers of the saints that Jesus in his new function as high priest would hear and mediate. They sang a new song, praising Christ's work on earth, which would continue in heaven. This is when he is enthroned in heaven, 
Worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation 5, verse 9 and 10. And then after this, the song of the 24 elders and the for heavenly being, myriads of angels join in the singing. And White has described that scene in the following terms. The father's arms encircle his son. With joy unutterable, rulers and principalities and powers acknowledge the supremacy of the prince of life. The angel hosts prostrate themselves before him, while the glad shouts fill all the courts of heaven. And then she quotes Revelation 5, verse 12, which is the next hymn. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Sevenfold praise of Jesus. Songs of triumphs, Ellen White continues, mingle with the music from angel harps till heaven seems to overflow with joy and praise. Love has conquered. The lost is found. And John finishes then his report in chapter 5, saying, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in, in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The ascension of Christ affected the Godhead. It affected all creation, all creatures. It is crucial for the success of the plan of salvation. Finally, we come to this question that we postponed. The question what the ascension means to us. And as I said, this is a legitimate question. It is not, but it is not the first question to be raised. It's legitimate. Uh, there are benefits of Christ's ascension for us, but not only for us. And therefore, we had to see the larger picture. Here's what Scripture says about the benefits of the ascension of Christ for us. The disciples were not discouraged when Jesus left them. Rather, they were invigorated and praised God. When Jesus was exalted to God's right hand and received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he poured out the Holy Spirit. And this verse was what they were waiting for. So they were not sad. The disciples in turn then, after having received the Holy Spirit, proclaimed the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ with enthusiasm and with zeal. They were not able to keep silent. They had to share with others who Jesus is and what Jesus does. Jesus' departure from planet Earth did not leave us as orphans. And we have sang this, actually, I think it was the second stanza, wasn't it, of the, the first song that we, the first hymn, the introductory hymn. Um, it spoke about orphans too. So, we are not orphans. Jesus has not left us orphans. Christ gave his representative, the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, this is the gift. This gift could not be excelled, notes Ellen White. Since then, the Holy Spirit is with us, day by day. He guides us personally. He guides the church. He can still pray. We can still pray 
to be filled with the Holy Spirit even more, and we can do this with assurance, to be heard. Because Jesus said, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Again, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Second aspect, Paul tells us that when Jesus was exalted, God put everything under Christ's feet and made him head of the church. So Jesus is the head of the church. Now the church has two, two sides. It's a human institution and it's also a divine institution to some extent. And sometimes we rejoice about the divine side and sometimes we are bothered by the human side of the church. And then we, ch we should remember, if we are bothered by the human side of the church, who is in charge? Who is in charge of the church? The real head is not an elder. The real head of the church is not the pastor. The real head of the church is not the president. The true head of the church is Christ, and he pursues his goals with his church and will make this struggling church a triumphant church. Be of good courage. Third, Jesus is our mediator. He transfers his merits to us. He forgives our sins. He justifies and sanctifies us. There is no other name under the heaven given to us by which we must be saved apart from the name of Jesus. Who is to contemn? Condemn, writes Paul. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding, is interceding for you, for you and for me, for all of us. Now the point in what we are saying is this, Paul writes in Hebrews, we have such a high priest who one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every aspect, respect, has been tempted as we, yet without sin. After his ascension, Jesus was seated in heavenly places. This is a biblical expression, heavenly places. Ephesians 1, verse 20. But this very same book, Ephesians in chapter 2 says, God seated also us, the believers, in heavenly places. We are already, even while we are on earth, seated in heavenly places. We are already saved, and yet we are waiting for the final consummation. And there is more. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I not have told you that I go and prepare room for you? Jesus invites us into God's presence, into his house, which is the sanctuary. There God will dwell with us, wipe away all tears, and, we'll see, and we will see his faith. How will that happen? Jesus' ascension makes possible our ascension. Here we are back to the very first text that we quoted. The angels told the disciples, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus' ascension is indeed linked to his second coming. But besides all these different aspects, 
of uh, the ascension that we have hindered at and a little bit discussed, we have to say the ascension contains an important promise, the promise that Jesus will come again. Paul writes about the Lord's second coming, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up, caught up, ascension, together with him in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. The divine human Christ will take redeemed humanity home. Yes, there will be a second homecoming. First, when the Godhead meets again, the second one, when we are involved. Yet, Jesus Christ's ascension and our ascension, we have to acknowledge, differs. And it differs quite significantly. Christ's ascension was unique and always will be. Even Elijah's ascension was only possible because of Jesus' later ascension. Jesus is divine and human, creator and savior. We are human and always depending on him. We still may ask, how does that work? How does an ascension work? Now, I think we should not think so much about travel through space. One cannot get to God simply by traveling sufficiently far and sufficiently fast. We never would make it to get to God, even if we would live forever. God is in a different dimension of, dimension of reality. Quite likely, the ascension has to do with entering another dimension, just as stepping from one room into another room. Today, this is more easily understandable with all the knowledge that we have through physics and so on than it was centuries ago. Even the cloud is not a meteorological feature in the atmosphere, but an indication of God's presence as it was in the ascension and as it was in Israel's exodus when the cloud accompanied the people of God. About the ascension, an author with the name Kurt Henning states, in the same moment when one wanted to watch, everything already melted away. So he's talking about Acts 1. So there was nothing to see, for a cloud took him away before their eyes, as it is recorded. So just like in the resurrection, nobody saw what was actually going on, because you can look at God, God's hands, but not at his fingers. There's indeed the report of the witnesses about the ascension, but there is no video of it. So, we have to wait and see and be surprised. But what matters, so, even if we don't know precisely how that works, what matters is that you and I are taking part in that. Martin Heidegger once said, if Jesus of Nazareth has risen from the dead, then every scientific knowledge is preliminary. If he has risen from the dead, then everything we think is still questioned by him. If Jesus ascended to heaven, then we are never among ourselves. And that is exciting. When we land on Mars, he is already there. And when we die, he is also there. If it is true that he ascended to heaven, then the entire cosmos is permeated by his power. That is breathtaking. If he has really stepped back into the invisible world, and he has, then he stands in a reality 
from which our reality comes, then we still have great things ahead of us. So, let me summarize. The ascension of Christ is, first of all, the greatest homecoming of all times and of eternity. It reunited the Godhead in heaven. Second, the incarnation, passion, resurrection, and ascension of Christ changed everything, beginning with the nature of the Godhead, with Jesus' own position as priest-king, continuing with the defeat of Satan and the wholehearted support of Jesus to all loyal beings of the universe. Third, the immense benefits of humanity in, for humanity include forgiveness of sin, salvation to eternal life, direct access to God, a close relationship with God, divine guidance, care, and love. As Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection, so his ascension guarantees our ascension. So how does our deliberation of the ascension of Christ affect us? It depends on us. A deeper understanding of God and his involvement with humanity, deeper understanding of Christ's condescension and exaltation of his love can warm our hearts. It does mine. And it can lead us to seek God's presence more and deepen our relationship to him. And this is what I hope would happen. And it can cause us to give up our independence and our self-sufficiency and to rejoice completely in God's grace. It can change our everyday life and can change our value system. We may live a life honoring him, serving others, and proclaiming the best news that ever had to be shared. But all of that depends on you and on me. However, we may decide, here is God's call to us. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession and wait for him from heaven. I hope I speak in your name by saying, this we will do.